You know, someone says, oh boy, I'll never get those two hours back. Or even if someone that uh, is talking to you for an extremely long time and you're like, man, enough already. I just feel like that was a complete waste of time. I, uh, in my previous career, I had a friend that I worked with and he walked into my office and I looked at him and I noticed he, he had gotten extra sun. He had been outside and there were a lot of uh, little scrapes, nicks all over his arms. I'm like, hey, what's going on? He goes, well, my church is on a 20-acre uh, lot. The church is built on a 20-acre lot and the lot used to be an orchard. So it's other than where the building is, so for those um, five acres, the other 15 acres are still trees. And so they, there had been a lot of people talking about how it was really unattractive, all of these trees, because it wasn't an, an operating orchard, so it was totally overgrown and uh, very unattractive. So my friend, in, in, a, in, a, in a desire to serve the church, recruited some other people and took on the job of trimming 15 acres of citrus trees, of overgrown citrus trees. And so I watched over the weeks. He spent all of his off time, and other people were dropping off that were helping him. So he spent all of his off time, his weekends, his evenings, away from his family to go he just threw himself into it to go trim these trees. He took his truck out there. He was trimming trees and trimming trees and trimming trees. And um, just for a little bit of math, by the way, I had to look this up. The, for the average acre of, for citrus trees, you will get 218 trees, citrus trees per acre. So that means he's looking at 3,270 trees. Okay, and he's committing himself. So every time I see him, he's all chewed up. His arms are all chewed up because he is out there just doing it. He got down to the last, I want to say, acre, and the church came to him and said, hey, by the way, we're starting a building project. We're tearing them all out. Tearing them all out. So he spent all that time away from his family, um, endured physical pain, I mean, he, uh, months, I'm talking about months, he, con he, he committed himself to this project. And really, in the end, it was all a big, giant waste of time. Now, we're looking today, uh, Pastor Nick read for us the first 24 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. And what we have in chapter 15, the entirety of 15, not just the 24 verses uh, that, that start the chapter, but in the entirety of the chapter, we have the longest treatment of the resurrection anywhere in Scripture. So Paul has committed 58 verses to talking about the resurrection of Christ. And Paul, at least one of the reasons that he is even writing this and spending that much effort in this letter to talk about this particular topic is because his observation is that somebody is wasting their time. Somebody is wasting their time, and he even puts it into the category of possibly it's even him. There is somebody that is not only wasting their time, it's bigger than that. They're wasting their life. We're not talking about a few months and scrapes on the arms. They are wasting their entire life. Now, 
what's important to remember is that Paul is writing a letter to a church. In 1 Corinthians, that means that he authored a letter to the church in Corinth. So this is not an op-ed piece. So what he is saying is not just going out to the masses, to the public. In one sense, absolutely, the letter is intended to be read publicly. It's supposed to be passed around and read, but all of that is supposed to take place within the confines of the church. This is what I'm getting at. He is not just speaking like out into uh, the wind uh, or in the, the Twitterverse, or this isn't a Facebook post where he's giving his opinion. This is a personal letter to the people that are inside the church. So I would ask you, as you hear what he does and the argument that he makes, that you put yourself in that church. You are in a church today. Whether you're here regularly or not, you are in the church. They would have the same situation. There are going to be those in the church in Corinth that would have been there regularly and some that would have been there at the time that this was publicly read as a letter from Paul. And so what we see is that Paul describes right at the very beginning what it is that's at stake. And he makes it very clear that what's at stake is the gospel. It's right there in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. So he's laying the groundwork. All of this that we're talking about is in the context of the gospel. So I would say that this is not only bigger than wasting time over the course of months. This is not only bigger, or this is not only wasting time in the sense of, hey, you're wasting your whole life. He is framing this in, is it possible that all of this is a waste even into eternity? And he narrows it all the way down to this concept of whether or not there is going to be a bodily resurrection after we die. Is there going to be one? In other words, this, this idea of the gospel, where he's establishing this in verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, when he heads toward the concept and the, uh, of, uh, of resurrection, the resurrection of the body after death, it is the Jenga piece that's holding up that entire Jenga gospel tower. He is focusing on that particular piece. And so he says briefly, as a good pastor should, even though he's going to talk about a specific issue, he, can, he will not pass by the opportunity to mention what the gospel actually is. He makes the assumption, I would remind you, so that, that is to say you should already know this, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Yeah, you guys know this. I preached it to you. You acknowledged that you received it and that you're being saved and that you're, of course, holding fast to that word that I preached to you unless I preached to you in vain. Because he also knows that there are those that find themselves in church, that find themselves subjected to the public reading of Scripture, that find themselves sitting before the public proclamation, the preaching of the Word of God, who don't really hold fast to the gospel. And for that reason, he lays out in the next couple of verses that gospel. 
For I delivered to you, even though he already said, I remind you of what I preached and that you received, he still says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And right there in that one verse, we have that Jenga tower, the, the, the big picture of the gospel message. Because if you hold fast to what he says in that one verse, in verse 3, then you acknowledge, first of all, that you are a sinner. Christ died for our sins. The gospel message starts the very beginning. The first step is to say, wow, I am a sinner. I have violated God's law. I need a Savior. It's unfortunate that A lot of churches cater to the attitude of the American culture, which just says, give me hope, give me good news, things that make me feel better. So they start with faith, and faith is great, and you must have faith. But there is something that precedes that, and that is repentance that says, not only do I need to add, in addition, a Savior to my life, I need to realize how I have fallen short. There is no legitimate faith in Christ without a legitimate repentance. And so he says, I delivered to you as a first repentance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So he has in there both repentance and faith, the fact that we are sinners and that it is Christ and a faith in Christ that makes up for the deficit that we have by violating God's law. He, in, in just one phrase, in one verse, he's reminding them, he's giving them that gospel reminder. I remind you of the gospel. That's that Jenga tower that is standing tall of the gospel message that requires repentance and faith. So now that he's clarified very briefly and very quickly what the gospel message is, that he is already saying, you know, remember that I preached to you, that you received, and that you're holding fast to. That's that background. Then he moves in at verse 4 to focus on that individual Jenga piece of that gospel Jenga tower which is the resurrection. And see, he slides right into it. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So he's changed the topic. See what's happening here. We've got the gospel, and now he's already narrowing it down. He knows there's an issue that within the church that there are people that are denying the reality that there will be life after death that there will be some kind of a bodily resurrection at some point after death. So he goes from gospel message, and he transitions right here. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he immediately moves into the defense of that reality about Christ. He basically is saying, here's the facts. Here is what we know to be true. And he goes on to describe that Christ, when he was resurrected, he saw someone, and someone saw him. That was Cephas, which is just another name for Peter. Then he goes on from Peter to be seen by the twelve, right here, verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, then he appeared to the twelve. 
And then in verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, and he goes out of the way to say most of, uh, most of whom are still alive. So he is telling the reader, as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus Christ specifically, he was seen by Peter, he was then seen by the twelve, he was then seen by over 500 people, which, by the way, most of them, you go look them up, and they will tell you. They're still alive. Go find any, any one of them, and they will tell you, I was there, I saw him with my own eyes. And then he says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So he appears to Peter, he appears to the 12, he appears to more than 500, then he appears to, the, uh, to James, his half-brother, then he goes on to appear to all the apostles, and then he goes uh, on to talk about how, and then lastly, as one untimely, he's talking about himself, then he appeared to Paul himself. So he's laying out all of these eyewitness facts and even giving them the opportunity to say, if you don't want to believe me, go talk to any of these other folks that were there. They will confirm what it is that I am telling you. And he goes on for a couple of verses to, to kind of humbly talk about his own experience. But the point of what Paul is doing here is to tell the reader. He's, he's going down a certain line of logic here and, and to say... The fact that Jesus was resurrected is indisputable. That, that's just kind of baseline. When he says in verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according with the scripture. And then he goes on to that he appeared to, and he goes from 1 to 12 to over 500, back to 1, back to all the apostles, and to Paul. So he basically is lining it out and saying the very fact that Christ himself was resurrected, it's really, it, it can't be reasonably um, doubted. If you want to choose not to believe, then that's on you, but it is not a reasonable doubt that you can hold. And then in verse 11, he recaps the fact that all of them has have assented, have agreed with that specific fact about Christ's resurrection, his life after death, right here in verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Are you following me so far? Okay, he is mentioning that the gospel is what's at stake. He is getting to the main point that there are people within the church so this is, right, he's talking to you. There are people within the church that believe there is no life after death. There's nothing more. But then he goes on to talk about what he knows to be an indisputable, verifiable eyewitness fact that Christ himself, in his case, was resurrected. And those same people, in Christ's case, believe that. They're like, well, of course, Jesus was resurrected. Absolutely. I believe that. He's like, okay, well whether you heard it from me or you heard it from somebody else that's preached it, we've said it and you believe it. He's establishing the groundwork. It's like we're all on the same page. We've said it, you believe it, it can be verified. And then he moves into verses 12 to 19. Because at this point, your question might be, okay, yes, I understand what you're saying, so where's the rub? 
What's the issue? What's the beef? What is Paul having a problem with? And so his problem is with those that try to say or, or believe that there is no physical resurrection of the dead separate from Jesus' scenario. So in verse 12 it says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, so that's the fact that they have you know, said that they believe, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And then he just starts to lay it out. Because if there is no resurrection of the dead in general, of people in afterlife, then not even Christ has been raised. You don't get to separate the two. You don't get to pick Jesus and say, I believe that, but I don't believe anything else is going to happen after I die. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He's already just running it down. He's like, look, all this stuff, you're in the church, you're submitting to preaching, why? It's all a waste. If there is no bodily resurrection after death, then Christ has not been raised. Our preaching is in vain, and in fact, your faith is in vain, and it only gets worse from here. Not only is your faith in vain, that also means, if you believe that, that, and if it is true, then those of us that are preaching Christ's resurrection are liars. Because now we're just talking garbage. It can't be true if you're going to take away bodily resurrection. In verse 15, where it says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. And then he continues back to it, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. See how that is the point that he's trying to address. There are people that believe that the dead are not raised. And so he's just going right through the thing. He's like, well, hey, if you're going to stick with that, and if you're right, then... Our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, we're liars, and, um, and if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. See, he's starting to connect it to the person sitting there who wants to, in their mind, say, no, I believe this stuff about Jesus, all this amazing and beautiful and triumphant and glorious stuff about Jesus, but I don't believe necessarily what's going to happen after I die or really how, uh, what takes place after anybody else dies. And so Paul is taking this all the way down to that, that point where it connects to, well, then if that is true, then you are still in your sins. And in addition to that, verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That means that not only does that apply to you, that means that anybody else that had these positive thoughts about this guy Jesus, but that you deny there's any bodily resurrection after death, that means that they too have died in their sins. Now, at this point as well, I would say it might be possible that you acknowledge, you know, yeah, I I understand everything that you're saying, and I am not saying, this is me speaking for you, by the way, I am not saying 
that there is no bodily resurrection after death. So why are you picking on me? I can, I, I've, I've done what you've asked. I've put myself into the position of sitting in that church in Corinth where this letter is being read aloud to me. And here you are. And I am saying to myself, no, I believe that Jesus was resurrected. And I believe there's something else that's going to happen after death. There is afterlife. There is going to be a bodily resurrection. Well, this isn't just a... Uh, theological or academic or churchy kind of debate. This isn't a, 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 a topic that, you know, pastors or elders get together over coffee and just want to uh, chop it up over uh, Christ's resurrection and try to uh, figure out the nuances. This is where the rubber meets the road in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So here's my question. If you just put yourself into the category that I just described and you say, look, I do not deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that that entails. And I do not deny that there is a bodily resurrection and that there is an afterlife and that there are all these things that are going to take place in the time to come. I would ask you, does your life testify to that reality? Because it's one thing to have a mental assent and say, yeah, no problem, I believe it. But that is not what Paul is getting at. See, he went through this whole logical progression of saying, hey, we all agree, I preached it, you, or you heard it from somebody else that was preaching it, this truth about Jesus. You're all good about saying, I believe in God. You're very comfortable with somebody saying, how do you feel about Jesus? Yay, Jesus. Count me in. I'm a Jesus guy. But then... When you take the logic through to what Paul is saying, and he brings it all the way down, and then verse 19 says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. So that's really the question for you. Is your hope in this life only? Because there's a difference between knowing these truths, even being willing to be public about these truths, about the resurrection of Jesus and the life that is to come and living a life that clearly demonstrates that your hope is right here and right now. This is where your hope is. You may not deny these doctrinal things. You might be able to sit into a room with a bunch of Christians and say, yeah, I got, I got, nope, you'll get no pushback from me. But in your life, your exercise of good deeds, your Christian-like life, it is absolutely possible that you are still completely wasting your time. Because it is a package deal. You cannot be a part-time Christian. You cannot say you assent to these truths Live a life that clearly demonstrates that your only hope is in what takes place now. 
and then think to yourself, well, isn't, you know, I said I, I'm a Jesus guy. I said I agree. Isn't that enough? But the question isn't, do you believe in God? You know what Jesus said. Even the demons believe in God. It isn't, do you believe in God? The question is, do you love God? What does your life demonstrate? A mental assent or a heart love? Because when your heart, when you love God because you recognize that you are a sinner, we're right back to that gospel message. When you recognize that you have violated God's law and you recognize that Jesus Christ and the work that he accomplished on the cross, dead, buried, raised, ascended, seated at the right hand of God, you cannot do anything other than to respond in obedience because if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what this argument is about as well. It's not just, hey, let me, uh, Paul isn't just saying, let me put together a a logical argument for the future Uh, for me to try to convince you that there's going to be a bodily resurrection. That bodily resurrection has an impact on your daily life. And he goes on then in verses 20 to 24 to talk about the implications. See, this is different thinking. This is a different way to live life. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So, in the end, anything that we might gain some sort of um, affirmation from, something that pleases us in this life, you know, when you're a kid, um, a little one playing with a toy, they don't care about what's happening later in the day. The fact of the matter is, they don't even care. They'll, they will pee themselves before leaving their toys because that's what they want to do. They want the toys instead of to stop and go to the bathroom. I want to continue to do what I'm doing. And we, that, that attitude, you know, in a more refined way, continues throughout our lives. And then you get a little older, and then you're a teenager, and you go, well, I know that I assent to these truths and that I grow up in the church and I even, I even go to a church that recites catechisms and like does this moment of silence and prays a bunch and like does all this stuffy stuff. I, uh, I, I've, I've grown up in this church and yet as a teenager you go, well, um, yeah, but this is what I want to do now because it pleases my friends because I want to be accepted in that particular group. It's a very short-sighted uh, way of living. But we all know that that, that is a familiar um, scenario among teenagers. But then you get a little bit older and you go, well, hey, well, I started, you know, I got married, I got married young, and I'm starting a family. Like, I've got to focus on my family. 
and who can blame me for you know pouring myself into my family and then it slides into a career and next thing you know you're thinking about well how can I move ahead within my career I need to be able to provide for my family I've got to um, um, get you know I'd like to get the next promotion this makes me feel good about myself I think I have these skills all these things are good there's nothing wrong with being a little one that likes toys. There's nothing wrong with being a teenager that wants some approval from their friends in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with wanting a good marriage and to succeed in your job. What happens when you get closer to the end, those of you that, that fit in this time bracket, as people get closer to the end of their career, there's something that they start thinking about then. You would think, okay, well now, do you transition to this like... Um, um, now that you're about to retire and be at the end of your career and your main working days, do you then transition to this uh, end of the age thinking, this, you know, doing things that are bigger and that honored the Lord more than the, the short-term things? No, you start thinking about your legacy. Well, what am I going to leave behind? How are people going to remember me at my place of work? You know, and, and we now, and again, it's this short-term thinking and we watch it happen all the way up to someone's deathbed. And what, I'm, what I believe Paul is saying, what I believe God is saying through his scripture, is yes, you may assent to being a Christian and being on the Jesus team and uh, that you believe that there's going to be a life after death and a bodily resurrection but are you living in a way that your hope is in this life only, or will others see the decisions you make? And by decisions, what I mean is where it becomes evident is sacrifices that you make, because you will bump up against the world, right? There are, you got a choice between two masters, and life will present you with the opportunities. You do not have to go out and try to pick a fight for Jesus and then if you get hurt or gunned down for Jesus, then see, you did it. That's not even what I'm talking about. You just be faithful in honoring him as a child, as a teenager, as, as a husband and wife, as raising your family. You be a godly employee, and you tell me if you're not going to run into opportunities where you have to sacrifice something within your job because you're like, I got to be true to God in this. My hope is not in this life only. It may cost me a promotion. It may induce conflict within my family because this is what God's word said, so we have to do it. it. Just We have to do it. Why? Because my hope is not in this life only. I don't just assent to the truths. I love God. I have to parent in a way that says, son, daughter, I'm doing this because I love my God. Can you say that about the way that you're living your life. Because in the end, verse 24, then comes the end. That's going to happen, okay? It's in, indisputable. This is going to happen. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So in other words, all those things that provide earthly affirmation, gone gone, laying our trophies at his feet, right? So we need to take on this bigger, this resurrection mindset. And as to this gospel and the fact that Paul is pointing out that all of 
the gospel, that Jenga tower, as I've put it, and hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I want you to consider two things. Is first of all, I have to remind you of where I started right there at the um, very beginning, is that if you have believed in vain, you have got to repent and believe in Christ because that end is coming. You have got to repent. Whatever affirmations, whatever things you're hoping for, whatever things you're, you know, want to turn around in your life and to get much better, none of it matters if, in the end, you forfeit your soul. And in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, we see this tied to the resurrection. It says, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is what I'm saying is that this whole mental ascent thing, like, yeah, Team Jesus, yeah, I believe that he was resurrected. If you believe that Jesus was resurrected, then this means you must also believe what it says in Acts, that he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And the man that is going to do that is the one that he raised from the dead. It's a package deal. So if you fit in that very beginning where Paul's like, well, you guys know the gospel message. I preach to it. You, you believe it, unless you did in vain. If you fit in that one, you need to repent and believe. And to those that do hold fast to the gospel, that you're like, yes, it has been preached to me. Yes, I absolutely believe it. I want to point out two things. First of all, let's look at Jesus's example, Hebrews chapter 2. And let's see what kind of perspective Jesus had as it related to short-term thinking versus resurrection thinking. Hebrews, uh, I think I said Hebrews 2, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, where it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. Let's do that. Let's lay aside every weight. Let us... And, and sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Your race is different than my race. Your race is different than the person sitting next to you. Even if you're married to them, their race is still different than your race. You run your race with endurance, the one that is set before you. But what should you be doing while you run that race? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And how did he do it? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And how did he feel about the fact that people just poured shame, layer and layer of shame upon him? He despised that shame. And instead he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He was focused on the joy that was set before him, and this is the good news for you. If you hold fast to that faith, you have the same joy set before you. You get an opportunity to decide if you are going to live your life holding on to only what this life has to offer, or you are going to live a life that is characterized by heading towards the joy that is set before you. So that's Jesus' example. And then the one other thing that I want to mention is out of Matthew 16, 
verses 24 to 27. And not only do we see then Jesus' example in Hebrews, but here is some great news, is whatever it is, the persecution, the race that has been set before you, and as you head toward that joy, and you have to overcome all kinds of obstacles, obstacles that may, nobody else in your family or among your friends has ever had to deal with. You might be bearing burdens that nobody really has a clue. You might have physical ailments, psychological ailments. You might have a background that has so much baggage and pain that it would blow someone's mind if they really knew the details of all of that. But here's something that you need to know about enduring all that and keeping your eyes on that joy that is set before you. In Matthew 16, 24 to 27, this is what it says. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. That's the person that's, hold, that's living according to, to having their hope in this life, right? Save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. What I want to point out to you is this. Whatever race it is that's laid out before you, that joy is out in front of you. And as difficult as it is, we have the assurance of verse 27. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This is what I want you to hear. It is worth it. You have been given a race. It is yours to run. Have a resurrection mindset. You will be repaid in a way that I could not possibly describe. It's only in God's good providential economy that he will give out more than we can, of course, ask or imagine. Let's pray. Lord, first of all, we come to you saying we do not believe in vain. Our hope is real. It's a real hope in a real Savior that was really resurrected and that there is a real resurrection that is to come, that there is a real joy for us to head toward as we endure the race that you have set out before us. Help us, Lord, to have a resurrection mindset, a resurrection of Christ mindset, a resurrection of our own bodies mindset, so that we might not live in a way that chases the trophies, the ribbons, the gumball machine trinkets of this world, Lord, but instead that we would run the race knowing that we will gain an eternal weight of glory with the Son in the presence of the Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.